Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for allowing me to come back again, and it's feeling like home here a little bit. I, I enjoy coming and seeing you all again, and uh, some of you I saw more recently on a golf course um, for the Ray of Hope Golf Tournament. Uh, yeah, that had big question marks on that one, the way those guys played golf, but uh, whatever. Um, and I think the last time I was here, I was on some flatbed in, uh, on a truck out in the parking lot. I think that was the last time I was here. And uh, it's great to, great to be inside. Uh, listen, I know I'm the biggest block between you and your lunch. <laughs> so I will try to make the next two and a half hours as tolerable <laughs> as possible. Yes, it's great to be here. And uh, I'm usually here when Dan's not here. That's probably a good thing, but because um, he's inevitably, <laughs> he books me to come when he's on vacation, and certainly uh, that's a, a, value, a valuable part of life. So you are involved in this thing called Timeless, Old Testament stories of flaws and faith, and you're reviewing some of the Old Testament stories, uh, and the, uh, maybe New Testament stories, stories of the Bible. And we need to understand that story is a huge part of God's inspired word. 40% of the Bible is story. So often we think that, you know, we need to go to Paul and his epistles, maybe go to the Psalms or the, the, you know, the, the law, the Torah or something like that. But the reality is story is a huge part of how God has communicated his message about himself uh, in, our, in our holy scriptures. And the story that I'm going to talk about this morning is just as God-breathed and inspired as John 3.16, or the book of Romans. And that's important for us to understand. Uh, a rabbinic saying says that God made people because he loves stories. Fascinating to hear that kind of a statement. And a colleague of mine, Marianne Vanderboom, who uh, teaches at our school, uh, wrote the following blog about Stuart McLean and the Vinyl Cafe, which many of you, I am sure, know about. And just before he died, uh, Marianne wrote this blog talking about story. And she entitled it, Tell Me a Story. So here's what she wrote. For the last seven years, I have driven to the barn pretty much every Saturday morning, and as often as I could, I listened to Stuart McLean's The Vinyl Cafe. I have grinned and laughed and thought and even shed tears with David Morley and the gang. I have li lingered in the car to ensure that I heard the end of the stories. And when I heard the words, I'm Stuart McLean, so long for now, I would turn off the ignition, sigh, wipe tears, laugh again, and get out of the car. I've often marveled at the genius that is Stuart McLean. He tells simple stories, stories about ordinary folk, absurd folk, in a simple way. He, re he read his manuscripts straight up. No extemporaneous speaking, no stand-up comedy, just a well-written story, read well, and people flocked to listen. I wonder sometimes if we have become a bit of, uh, have a bit of a snobbish attitude towards stories. We adults listen to propositions and lectures and sermons and speeches and TED Talks, but what about stories? Stories are for children, and yet 
Here was a guy who read stories in halls around the country. People bought tickets to hear him, and they tuned in to listen to him on the air. Nothing high-tech, no computer-generated imagery, no special effects, no 3D immersive large-screen glitz, just a voice, a quiet, wry, raspy voice. And we listened and laughed and cried and thought and laughed and cried some more. Dave and Morley became our friends. We cried when their dog died. We laughed when Dave got himself into his endless scrapes. He was so much like all of us. We were glad when the two of them made choices for love and loyalty and kindness and decency and courage and neighborliness. neighborliness. Just a story, but it made our lives richer. That's the beauty of story. It disarms a reader. It draws us in and gets us invested, and then it turns and prods and convicts. God knew that. And I think that's why so much of Scripture is written as story. Oh, sure, there are laws and psalms and letters and sermons, but underlying all of them is a story. Think of how many of the psalms are embedded in a story, just as an example. Because while we are taught by law and psalm and letter and sermon, we connect most deeply, I think, with story. Jesus knew that. That's why he told so many parables. Oh, sure, he gave instructions and teachings, but so many times he answered with a story. The story is a way of getting in behind the defenses and presupposition and forces us to look at things through new eyes. Instructions and teachings are important, but they engage the head. Sometimes it is the heart that must be turned, and the heart is turned most easily, I think, by story. And I think even as a church, we have lost our sense or our value of story. We have relegated the story to Sunday school, considering the story to be the milk from which we must grow up so that we may eat the meat of theology, forgetting that story is also theology. We no longer trust a story. Stuart McLean knew the power of story. For 20 years, he wrote and read stories for and to adults. People didn't come to his shows to hear propositions about David Morley. They came to hear stories. And by the way, this is not part of Marianne's uh, blog here, but my wife and I regularly attended uh, uh, the Vinyl Cafe when it was in London. And uh, we would go and pay the, pay the money, buy the tickets, and sit there and listen to him tell these bizarre, absurd stories about David Morley and clap endlessly when he finished his story. Amazing, right? Yeah, they came, we came to hear stories. So Marianne continues to write, perhaps we should take a page out of his book. Perhaps we should return to the story as you guys are doing. That's fantastic. Perhaps we should tell more stories. Perhaps we need to remember that the story is theology too. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. So, Let's hear a story. And the story that I'm going to talk to you about is rooted in the time of the judges. Deborah, Samson, Gideon, Jephthah. Joshua has basically immobilized the land, prepared the land of Canaan for settlement. And now the people of God have fallen, however, into lethargy and faithlessness and, frankly, outright disobedience. And so God brings oppressors Moab, Ammon, the Philistines, to bring them back to himself. 
But every time, he raises up a person that we call a savior. Uh, we, would, we translate that as judges. The word probably is best translated savior. And this savior comes to the fore and delivers the people. And in the book of Judges, they are all very unusual. They are weird. They are odd. They are strange because God loves to use weird and odd and strange people like you and me. So one of them, of course, very odd and strange, is a woman. Of all things, a woman. Can you believe it? Deborah, right? And God uses Deborah. And that story of Deborah and, and Barak it's so funny because here's Barak. He's supposed to be this leader, and he's got Deborah beside him, and he says, well, I'll go if you come with me. What a wimp. Anyhow, that's, that's Deborah and Barak. And, of course, the same story has the story of Jael, Jael, who is the agent by which the uh, captain of the uh, Syrians, guy by the name of Sisera, uh, meets his end with a tent peg through his temple. We got, we got people in, in, in the book of Judges who are driven by fear and, and faithlessness. A, a guy by the name of G Gideon. And, and, you know, we often talk about Gideon's fleece. Please understand something. Gideon's fleece was an act of faithlessness. It was an act of unbelief. God had told him that he was going to go and be victorious. And God, he, had, he wanted to keep testing God. He does it twice with his fleece. That's not an act of faith. It was an act of faithlessness. It was a flaw. It was a failure. It was a foible. But God still uses him. We've got a, we've got a guy in, in, in the book that, that child sacrifices his daughter. A guy by the name of Jephthah makes his vow. And he keeps the vow of all things. When in the law, it had given a way out, but he chooses to follow with his human sacrifice promise and vow. A guy by the name of Jephthah, right? And then you got that, that failed and suicidal judge by the name of Samson, who, yes, delivers his people, but he has to commit suicide to do it. And the fascinating thing is, in all these stories, or at least many of them, guess where their names are found? In Hebrews 11, among the heroes of faith. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I just find that so awesome because you know what? If Samson can make it into the heroes of faith and Jephthah, so can I. And so can you. Isn't that amazing to think about that? God loves to use common, ordinary, often failed and foibled people in order to accomplish his, way, his will and his purposes. And what an encouragement that is to us to know that. So I'm going to read the story to you. It comes out of Judges chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, you can, you can go there and, and follow along as I read it to you. And I am going to give a bit of a warning. This, there is violence in the story. This story would be rated PG uh, for violence. And many of the stories in the Bible are. They're adult stories. And so, yeah, there's violence in the story. And we need to remember that so much of Israel's history is set in the context of a violent and over-sexualized culture called Canaanite. And the violence we see in this story is simply expressive of those times as Israel lived out its history in those times. So Judges chapter 3, 
I'm going to read through it, make a few comments as I go, and then we'll come back and we'll draw some applicational ideas from, from the story. All right? So, Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you have to understand, the book of Judges follows the same pattern of how they tell the stories. That they, they, they fall away from God. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God brings an oppressor. He raises up a Savior. Or they cry out to God. He raises up a Savior. Then, and then, then there's great victory on the part of the Savior. And then the land has rest for 40, 80, whatever years. So that cycle keeps repeating itself. And Ehud is the first judge that really has character to it. There's an earlier one, a guy by the name of Othniel, but he's pretty flat. Uh, he just kind of sets the pattern of how the story is going to be told. But Ehud is the kind of the first one that has color to him, that is kind of a, a 3D dimension to, to, to who he is. So we're, we're starting off with this guy by the name of Ehud. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They had, they had wandered away from God. Joshua had done his thing, but they are now falling away. And because they did this evil in the Lord, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, the interesting thing about Eglon is his name means calf or bull. All right? Now, we're going to find ourselves with a guy with a dagger. And the guy that's going to receive the dagger is called a calf or a bull. Anybody catching a little bit of the irony going on here? Absolutely. He's being set up as the fatted calf. There's a little bit of an edge to this story. There's a little bit of mockery. There's a little bit of uh, kind of almost... Well, a little bit of humor on the edges of this thing. I think the person who wrote this story is kind of telling the story with a, maybe a bit of a tongue in his cheek, but he's doing it in such a way to help us understand that mm, we don't need to worry about these things. God has all this stuff under control. All right, so please catch that, that there is a little bit of a humorous twist to this whole thing. So getting the Ammonites and the, and the uh, Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and he took position of, possession of the city of the Palms, which is down uh, in the Jordan Valley. It's the city of Jericho, right across the river from the country of Moab. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Not good. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a, a deliverer, okay, a savior, all right, and his name was Ehud, and the interesting thing about this guy is that he was left-handed, a left-handed man. Now, you've got to understand something. The Bible does not have a word for left-handedness, all right? The Bible does not have a word for left-handedness. The only way that they can describe somebody who is left-handed is to say that they were weak in their right hand. So I just want you all to know that if you are left-handed, according to the Bible, you are flawed. You are weak in your left hand. There's something wrong with you. Okay, smile at me, all right? Come on, all right, come on. And, but it is rather interesting. And, and, the, and the story goes on, and the next line says, he, the left-handed, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, and the word Benjamin means son of my right hand. 
Anybody kind of catching the irony going on here? So he's a left-handed dude, all right? And that's going to come out. I keep doing this. That's going to come out in the story. But he's the son of a guy who says uh, he's the son of a right-handed guy. So there's, there's just this very interesting tension and irony going on in the story. There's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek happening here, and, and it's kind of fun to read. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Every year they would have to take their tribute because they were subject uh, to this king. Now, this guy by the name of Ehud, the left-handed dude, had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long. Okay, it's actually a dagger more, which he strapped to his right thigh. Okay? Right thigh. Not his left, but his right. Okay, that's what's going on here, right? And the way that they would check for any kind of security is they would check the right side because that's where weapons were carried. Uh, and to his right thigh under his clothing. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very, um, okay, uh, I think we could say obese, large man, okay? And uh, that, again, the fatted calf, the whole irony coming through here. And after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who carried it. Go away, go away. And the, uh, at the idols, which near Gildal, we're not quite sure what that means. It might be some stone statues. That was the first place that Israel settled, settled when they came into the land under, under uh, Joshua. So we're not quite sure what that is. Uh, maybe a bit of a shrine. He, he himself turned back and said, and he comes back into the Eglon's palace or home, and says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And, and the king says, quiet! And his attendants all left him. So there's only the two of them left in the room. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Something's going to happen. The tension is increasing. This is how stories are told, beginning, middle, and end, right? Tension, resolution, all that kind of stuff. Cool. It's a classic story. Ehud then approached him. <laughs> Things are getting interesting. The Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of a summer palace. Uh, again, we're not quite sure what that is, but he's all by himself and perhaps in a place that's a little more cool because it is hot down, down in Jericho. And said, I have a message from God for you. Now, he doesn't say Yahweh because Eglon is not a, uh, a worshiper of Yahweh. But he, so he uses a kind of a generic word uh, to speak to him. And the king rose. He can kind of see this ponderous large man rising from his seat. The king rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand to his right thigh, drew the sword from his right thigh. And the story gets a little intense at that point. All right? And to say the least, um, Eglon suffered. Let's put it this way. He got the point. So, um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you can go home and read the, the, that little description. It's kind of, kind of grotesque. Then Ehud went to the porch. We're not quite sure what that word porch means. Uh, some actually think that it's the, uh, l <laughs> the lavatory chute. All right, yeah, remember, they didn't, have, they didn't have the kind of things that we have today to care for that kind of stuff, right? And it was probably just a tube that went out onto the street. 
Anyhow, so Lee Hood went out to, out to the, the uh, my NIV says the porch. We're not sure what that word means. And he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So now he makes his escape. After he is gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, oh, he must be. And the old King James Version that some of you grew up on says, covering his feet. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, at least the more modern versions say, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment and probably somewhat odiferous. Um, and when they, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the, do- fallen to the floor, dead. And while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and kept to, uh, escaped to Sira, somewhere in the hill country. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Victory. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord. Emphasize that word, Lord. I got it highlighted in yellow in my Bible. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and take possession of the fords of the Jordan, which, of course, right near Jericho, going back, into the, going back over to Moab. That led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. All right. So that's the story. And some of you probably have never heard that before. Others of you have read it and maybe not with the kind of uh, emphases that (laughs) I just read it to you with. Bizarre. A little bit odd. A little bit of that, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek edge to it. And a little bit of mockery uh, lingering around the edges. Um, I've told this story, and I've worked with this story many, many, for many, many years. And um, I, probably not the smartest thing to do, but I told it in a Christian school children's chapel. <laughs> all the way from kindergarten all the way up to, I think, grade 6 or grade 8 or something like that. And uh, I actually came with a dagger, all right, under my coat. And, uh, and it's interesting because one of the little girls in that grade in that kindergarten class, eventually became my uh, my executive, my uh, my my secretary or, or uh, administrative assistant at the church that I pastored in London, uh, the old Central Baptist Church. And this, the, <laughs> she was in kindergarten at the time. And I remember when we hired her, she looked at me and said, "You know, Pastor Dave, there's one thing I remember about you. You came to chapel." and told us the story of Ehud and Eglon, complete with a dagger stuck under your coat. I have never recovered. (laughs) I am still traumatized by that story. (laughs) So I apologize profusely, and I'm a little more careful where I tell this story, because maybe grade, or, you know, five-year-olds is not the best group of people. Grade six boys love it, okay, for sure. All right. So what do we learn from this story? Well, I am convinced that the Bible only answers three questions. Only answers three questions. One, what do we learn about God? Two, what do we learn about ourselves as the people of God? And three, what do we learn about the world? 
whether the created world or the world that is, in fact, arrayed against God and his kingdom. There's lots of questions underneath each of those questions that need to be answered, for sure. But those are the foundational questions that we must ask every time that we read the Bible. What am I learning about God? What am I learning about myself and ourselves as the people of God? And what am I learning about the world? And then we can ask all those other questions that tend to fall under uh, those three categories. So, I'm going to answer, try to answer those three questions coming from this story. And the first question is, what do we learn about God? And you know what? What we learn about God is we read the stories of the Bible, and it doesn't matter what story we're reading, whether it's David and Goliath, whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether it's Daniel and Lion's Den, whoever, whether it's a story about Moses, whether we're reading the stories of, of the judges, reading Joshua, God is the hero of every story. God is the large H hero of every story. And you'll notice that in the story, the way the narrator told the story, and we don't know who the narrator was, but he's telling the story of Ehud and Eglon, notice what he makes sure that the audience hears. Verse 26, verse 28, Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And so the narrator of this story, under the guidance of the Spirit of God, under the inspiring work of the Spirit of God, makes sure that we hear as we read this story that it is God, even though he's using the left-handed dude with a, dag with a dagger, it is God that gave the victory. And you can read story after story after story, and you will find that that is where the fo focus is. You know, it's interesting because very often when we tell stories, we go directly to the protagonist. We go directly to, to David or we go to, directly to Daniel or we go to, directly to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We, we go directly to them. We draw a line from us and we say to our kids, dare to be a Daniel, and then we bring it back to us. You know what? That's just moralizing a story. I can do that with the three little pigs. I don't need the Bible to simply go to a good person and come back. But when I take them through God, who is the hero of the story, and then take them to the person, then bring it back through God as the hero of the story, then to me, I am theologizing the story. I am making the hero of the story God. And I can say to our kids, I can say to you, the same God that gave the ability to whoever to do what they did that same God is our God who is able to give us the ability to do what we need to do. And God is the hero of the story. Yeah, we can talk about a small H hero or a protagonist, but if we're going to use the Bible, let's be sure we get to God. And let's be sure we make God the hero of all these stories, even in David and Goliath's story. If you read the story in, in 1 Kings 18, and you come to, the, to David's soliloquy towards uh, to, to, to Goliath, you read that little section. It's right in the middle of the story, and he gives all attributes to God who is going to give him, today, God will deliver you into my hand. Today, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And that's David's speech in the middle of while he's spinning his, his slingshot or catapult to uh, take down Goliath. So, we need to understand 
the stories are always showing God, him, God as strong. Even when the heroes, small age heroes, the protagonists are weak, odd, flawed, and foibled. We need to get back to theologizing the stories and truly giving ourselves, our, our listeners, our kids, ourselves, the real encouragement that's found there. As God is the hero of all those stories, so God can be the hero of our stories and the stories of our churches and our families, etc. So that's the first thing we learn. God is the hero of the story. Second, what do we learn about ourselves? Well, what we learn about ourselves in this story is that God loves to use the odd, the weak, the flawed, the broken. The title of your series is Stories of Flaws and Faith. Perfect. One, book in the, one, one commentary in the book of Judges has the title, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay. Great title. Ehud, a man weak in his right hand, brings about the saving of God's people. And it's interesting, because as these people are actually called saviors, coming in weakness, flawed, foibled, many of them imperfect morally, it points us to another person that came flawed, foibled, weak, not imperfect morally, of course, and that's the ultimate Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. And when we think about Jesus and his coming, he comes as a humble peasant, not as a power broker, which is, of course, what the religious leaders were looking for. He's born in a stable. He's a Galilean. He, he chooses fishermen and others to, to be his disciples. He came in weakness and humility and marginalization by both the religious and political powers. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. Who, being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taken on the very nature of a servant, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in many ways, these saviors that came along point us to that ultimate savior, and that ultimate savior points us in the direction of what we need to be and who we need to be. And it's interesting, before that poem that Paul wrote, he said this, let this mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus. So we learn about God. We learn about ourselves as the people of God. He loves to use weak, foibled, flawed people like you and me. Thank God. And then we learn about the world. In this story, the world is Eglon, Moab. And while they come and they oppress God's people, ultimately they are subject to God's power and victory and actually are an object of mockery and derision. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. <laughs> the Lord scoffs at them and he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we learn about God ourselves in the world. So what do we take away from all this? How does all this shape us? Shape you, shape me as God's people? So I think four things I want to just close off with, make these four points. First, 
we need to recognize that we have just had an encounter with God, the hero of the story, the large H hero of the story. We encounter our God who is not cowed by power, whether Moab or any other power that would oppress his people. He is king and sovereign. And while we don't see it yet, there is a time coming when our ultimate savior will return on a white stallion with a sword proceeding out of his mouth and with king of kings and lord of lords written on his thigh. And he is and will be the hero of the story, the story of the Bible, the story of history, the story of redemption and hope for creation and humankind. And I'll tell you something, folks, this shapes my faith. It shapes my faith. It gives me a sense of why I'm in the world and a sense of being in the world. It gives me hope. But as we encounter God, another thing that we run into as we encounter God is that he hears his, sees and hears his people when we fail, fall, drift, and even abandon. Time after time, Israel abandoned God, and time after time, he heard the cry of his people and raised up deliverers. And as we sang that song just before, this, just before the, uh, I, I came to speak, we, we run, run, run to the Father. The Psalms tell us, crash the throne room, come, crawl, run, walk, get there. He loves to have us come, crawl up on his knees, pound on his chest. You are welcome to my throne room. I am your father, I am your king. Please come, come, come often. Well, we find this revelation of this God that time after time heard his people and intervened in grace. In their weaknesses and oddities of the people that he raised up, he showed himself strong, and he is a God who is faithful even when we are not. And I'll tell you, I take this home with me in grace, gratitude, and thankfulness. But this, last, this second kind of, this last point about God hears is also is the point of the gospel. This is good news. We have a God that does hear and respond. And it validates our, our lives of trust and hope in him. And, 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 and not only does he hear us, but he loves to use us. Common, ordinary, foibled, and flawed people. He even uses left-handed people. Wow! I can't get over that one. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If people like Ehud can be used by God, if these people like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and David can make it into Hebrews 11, then we all have a chance. And that's good news. Amazing good news. And the further good news on this is that all and everyone can be part of this kingdom and subject to, the king, subject to this king. Israel was placed in Canaan and in the world to be a and in the world to be a kingdom of priests and witness to the true God Yahweh. And we're called, and they were called to be a blessing to the nations, Abrahamic covenant. And we carry that same message into the world. We announce that all and everyone can be brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, and we can share that with anyone who will listen. So there's a worldview shift here, too, isn't there? We have to think a little differently. God loves to use the ordinary, the imperfect, the weak to bring about his purposes, people like you and me. And yes, we need our leaders. Yes, we need our competences. Yes, we need those who are, who are, who've got capacity and competence to do what needs to be done. I understand all that. We need all that for sure. But let's never forget that in, in, in the way that the world does things, with its emphasis on power and strength and fame and wealth, that's not the kingdom of God. 
That's not the way his church operates. That's not the people that he uses. But he uses the humble, the marginalized, the voiceless, the ones who maybe not necessarily rise to the surface in the way that the world would see it. And it's amazing good news. But it's a worldview shift. No, we're not running around with daggers to deliver God's message. But the hero of the story loves to make us the heroes of our stories. And he loves to make our churches the small H heroes as he becomes the large H hero of our church and churches. So what is our response Fourth, And I'm not sure what your response is. I don't know you. I don't know how you're connecting with any of this stuff. I know what mine is. And I am thankful that God can use an average kid, very average kid, off a farm in Woodbridge to do some good things for Christ and his church. I'm also thankful that he's patient with me. And in my weakness and my wanderings and my laziness of faith, he is faithful and he hears my cry. Together we hear all these things as God's people and God's church. And insert your own story into this. And see where God can take you to encourage you, to bless you, to challenge you. Maybe take some time this afternoon to read through the story again. And just kind of say to God, okay, how do I fit into all this? And how can you use me with all my weaknesses and failures and foibles and flaws? Let each of us ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and encourage and challenge us. And when we hear these things, we, we can know in a new and fresh way that God can be the hero of our stories. God bless you all.